Uh, but we're in Galatians chapter 3, and we're taking it a little bit by bit. There's so much in here. Uh, we're just doing a few verses a week. Today we're going to be in 15 to 18. If you're looking in your bulletin, you see there's all these other verses. A few from a couple weeks ago and one from next week. It's because uh, it's all about uh, related to Abraham, and so it's relevant. I'm only going to read our passage, which is in the middle um, of your bulletin there, and then we'll look at the rest later. So this uh, is the word of the Lord. This is uh, Galatians 3, beginning in verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promise was made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. I, um, I um, ask specifically for your help uh, that I would very clearly explain this text, adding nothing to it, but only explaining what's here, applying it, illustrating it. And I pray for their hearts, Lord. Clear their minds and their hearts that they would be able to be good soil for this word to be planted in their hearts. I ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. I want to begin this morning um, asking this question, have you ever noticed um, how our culture loves everything new and has a distaste for things that are old? You know, why read a book that's 40 years old? It's so outdated. I found this book I I want to recommend to you. Um, It's called The Personal Computer Book, complete with up-to-date brand name buying guide. It was written in 1983, but it's up-to-date, mind you. Anyone interested in this book? That was 40 years ago. I doubt that many are buying it. I did find it online. You can buy it. (laughs) Hilariously. Um, But things quickly become out of date, right? 40 years, man, it's really old news, right? And we we think that way. Um, C.S. Lewis called this um, chronological snobbery. Chronological snobbery. He even wrestled with this before he came to faith. He said, um, how can an ancient religion be relevant to our present setting. He wrestled with this, and he defined chronological snobbery as an uncritical acceptance of the intellectual climate of our own age, an assumption that whatever has gone out of date is on that count discredited. Here he's saying, he's saying, we love everything new, but if it's out of date, it must be discredited just because it's out of date. So this morning, we're not going to look at something 40 years old. We're looking at something 4,000 years old. A promise made 4,000, that's a long time, 4,000 years ago. Many people make promises and they don't last the year. But here's a promise, it's 4,000 years and we can trust it. That's where we're going today. But sometimes it's easier, I found, I don't know about you, to trust in something that we can see. Right? You can see your good life or the days that it's good. And that's something visible, and so it's easy to hold on to that. But something unseen, like a really, really old ancient promise given to some Middle Eastern guy named Abraham. That's a long time ago and a far, far from here. It's unseen. It's harder for that to actually take traction in our hearts. So I can see, hey, I I did good today, and so I feel good. 
If you look on page 7, you see how this passage helps with this whole dilemma we're talking about. The question specifically we're answering, why is it better to trust God's promise rather than our obedience to the Ten Commandments? God's promise, so three answers to that. God's promise is unconditional and unchangeable. Second, God's promise is ours in Christ. And then third, God's promise came 430 years before the Ten Commandments. So that's the layout here. Let's look at the first. God's promise is unconditional and unchangeable. Look at 15 again. So Paul says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, here you could easily, uh, a fair translation would be a testament. You've probably heard last will and testament. A lot of your relatives have those. Some of you have them and you should. No one annuls it or adds to it once it is ratified. Now, we don't really know. Paul could be talking about Roman law. Could be talking about Greek law or Jewish law. They all varied a little bit. How you handle your will. So I don't remember which is which. One of them, um, as soon as you make it, you can't edit it. Like, it's just in stone. Hope you pick the right person up front because you're stuck with them. Then another one, you can edit until they die. But really, it really doesn't matter which he's thinking about. The point's obvious. That once it's ratified, because once a person's dead, there's no change in it, right? You can't be like, go back and say, actually, right? He, he's gone. No one else can change it. That makes sense, right? So what is he, why is he bringing this up? Because this is an argument of lesser to the greater. If you're familiar with that logical argument, let me give you an even easier example that Jesus gave. Uh, this is in Luke eleven thirteen. Jesus says this, if you then who are evil, who's he talking about? Know how to give good gifts to your children. Sorry, dads, it's us. So we're evil. So it's saying evil dads, and we could give, give good gifts to our children. How much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? See what Jesus did? He said, you're all evil, and you give really good gifts. How much more is God? Do You see, that's an argument from the lesser to the greater. So Paul's doing that. How's he doing that? So here he says, with your will, once it's ratified, once you're dead, you can't get rid of it. You can't, no one can say, ah, forget that, and no one can add to it. So how much more, how does this relate? How much more what? God. God made a covenant with who? In this passage, it's talking about Abraham. God made a promise to Abraham, and you can't change it. Now, why does that matter? Remember, who's this book written to? Galatia. What's happening in Galatia? You have these people coming in and saying, hey, what Paul said, he missed some stuff. You need the law. You need circumcision. You need to do extra stuff. They're adding to it. They're changing the will after the fact. And so Paul goes all the way back to Abraham and says, hey, you can't mess with this. What God said to Abraham, this wouldn't stand in your courts. It won't stand with God. Does that logic make sense? That's his logic in verse 15. Okay, look back. This is also printed in your bulletin, verses 6 to 9. This is a couple weeks ago when Brandon preached, but it's very relevant to our passage, so we need to read again. Verse 6 says, Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. God promised, and he believed, and he got righteousness, right? That connects to justification, which we've talked about recently. Uh, So verse 7, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. What? The gospel was preached to Abraham? How so, you say? So it's a saying, in you all the nations will be blessed. Did you hear the gospel in there? You might not have. 
Let me connect the dots here. Oftentimes, uh, in the Old Testament, things are fuzzy, but it's there. You just have to look real closely. So here's what he means. If for God to tell to Abraham, in you, all the nations will be blessed. Well, in him, Israel was blessed, but not the nations. Until you get to who? Christ. And we're, that's, he's going to connect those dots in a second. So it's actually through Christ, which there's the gospel, Christ is the gospel, that then all the nations will be blessed. So Abraham's long, long descendant, Jesus, is then going to get it to the whole nations. The only way that this could be fulfilled, the promise, was through the gospel. So therefore, the gospel is preached in seed form. Let me give you one other connection. Genesis 3.15, do you know that verse? That's actually the first seed of the gospel. And you're like, okay, so here, here's the verse. So this is the curse to the serpent. He says, the seed of the woman will do what? Crush the head of the serpent. And you're like, really the gospel? I'm not seeing the gospel there. It's there because that seed who's going to crush is who? Jesus. He's going to crush Satan. And the, the snake is going to bite his heel, which is the cross. That's the gospel in seed. So it, it, takes a little, it takes a Dakota ring to figure this out. Um, but once you see it, you begin to see, okay, this is the, the seed of the gospels right here. God is already talking about Jesus is going to come way, way later. We look back and it makes more sense. Oh, I get it. Jesus died on the cross. He crushed the serpent. Then we see here, Abraham, through you all the nations will be blessed. Oh, the only way that could happen is through Jesus. So therefore the gospel. Hope you're following that logic. Then verse 9. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. The point here is the Judaizers were in Galatia were doing something that would not even be allowed in a human court. Where you can't go and you can't edit stuff. You can't mess with people's uh, wills after they die. And so all this, all what verses 6 through 9 we're talking about, that is through faith, over and over the point there. Abraham was saved through faith. Don't mess with it. That's a paraphrase. Don't mess with what, what verses 6 to 9 say. And hopefully this can help you from being deceived. You, like Galatia, the people in Galatia, can be deceived that your good life will save you. If you're not a Christian, that definitely is really important, and we're going to come back to that. Philip Reich, in his commentary, uh, talks about this, and it's helpful. He says, when God made the promise to Abraham, God said, I will, I will, I will. But when God gave the law to Moses, God said, thou shalt, thou shalt, thou shalt. Do you see any difference between these two? To Abraham, he's just promising stuff. He's just saying, hey, I'm going to do all this stuff for you. With Moses, the Ten Commandments, we studied these, didn't we? We had week after week, same pattern. Hey, new commandment. Oh, look, I break it. Look, new commandment. Oh, you break it, right? We just, we did that for 10 weeks. It was, it was great, wasn't it? But we understood that, oh, I break all these commandments. Okay, and so now we're to Galatians. It's much, much brighter. And so it's God saying, I will, I will, I will. Okay, so kids, you remember at the beginning of the service, I said your top five list? Here's the story that I think I, I would suggest considering for your top five list and adults. Here, it's in, in um, Genesis 15. Here's how it goes. So God appears to Abraham, and he makes promises. And he, he promises this great inheritance. He says, you, through you all the nations will be blessed. I'm going to be a God to you, all this stuff. And Abraham says, how do I know? How do I know? How, do I, can, how can I trust you, God? And so God says, go get some animals. He gives him a list of animals. Abraham knows exactly what's going on. No, no further instructions are needed. I got it, God. So he goes and gets the animals, and he cuts them all in half. Now you know why it's not in your storybook Bibles. 
he cuts them in half and he plates one half of the animal here and the other half here. And there's this little alley between them. And he said, animal half, animal right down the, down the row. He's cut all the animals in half and he stands, he waits. He says, all right, I'm all ready. Now to you, this is meaningless. <laughs> to Abraham, he knows exactly what's going. See, when you bought your house, if you own a home or if you got married, you, there's a notary, wasn't there? That you signed and notarized their witnesses, all that stuff, right? They didn't do that. This is how they made agreements, covenants. They cut animals in half, they laid them, and then two people walked down between them. Why would they do that? Kids, it's kind of weird, isn't it? A bunch of bloody animals walking between them. This is why. That what they were saying, both of them were saying was, if I don't keep my, hand, my, sorry, my half of this bargain, let it be to me like it was to those animals. That doesn't sound fun. That's what they're saying. They're saying, cut me in half if I don't keep my half of the bargain. We're literally going to walk between these animals, and we're promising to each other. Okay, so here's Abraham saying, I got my animals ready. This is the part that's amazing. This is, um, you can read this in Genesis 15. I encourage you to read it. It says, um, there's a darkness fell over him, and a um, flaming torch and a smoking pot appeared, representing God, and passed between the animals, leaving Abraham in the dust. He's just sitting here as a spectator, and only God is passing between. What in the world does that mean? This is so super significant. What it meant was God was making an unconditional covenant, a covenant without condition. He was saying to Abraham, I am making promises. I will, I will, I will. And there was no thou shalt, thou shalt, thou shalt. Isn't that amazing? This is the clear, one of the clearest pictures we have in the Old Testament of the gospel. Of a, this is, I'm going to do something. God's saying, I would rather be cut in half. I am the unchangeable God, God says. I, want, I would rather die than not keep this promise. That's a big, that's a big statement. What, what's Abraham's part? Nothing. Nothing. There was absolutely no conditions for Abraham to keep in order to receive these promises. Now do you see why this maybe should make your top five list? So much so that Paul brings it up multiple times in his letters. This is one of them. Look at verse six again. Just as Abraham believed God, he saw this and he said, I believe. I believe, God, that you mean what you say. And what does it say? It was credited to him as righteousness. Is that not the gospel? Justification. Kids, just as if I had never sinned, just as if I had always obeyed. Um, Abraham received that as he watched all this happen. God made promises to him and he believed it. It was credited to him as righteousness. Now, isn't this true with an earthly inheritance? Now, I don't know if any of you have any rich relatives, but if you were, and they were to put you in their will, you are the sole heir to, the, to all their wealth. What would you have to do to receive that? They pass away, and that's in their will. Would you have to, like, do anything? What do you think, kids? No. You just show up at the courthouse and say, my name is Nathan Francis. I'm here to receive my rightful inheritance of so-and-so. Right? You just believe. All I have to do is believe that, that that's really true, and I go show up and I claim it. Is that not true spiritually? You have to claim an inheritance. Now, this should be very encouraging to you if you're not a Christian. Because if you're not a Christian, what do you have to do to become a Christian? Many people say, I have lived too wicked of a life. If you knew the things I had done, you'd know I, I could never become a Christian. God would never accept me. So remember all those animals cut in half. 
Abraham did not walk through. The gospel is by faith. All you have to do is receive it. You just show up to the courthouse and say, yeah, I'm not entitled. I'm actually the worst of all his relatives. I have no idea why he picked me, but my name's on the will. And so I believe it. I, by faith, believe it. So do you, by faith, believe that God meant what he said when he said, believe in me and you will have eternal life. Believe in me and you'll have eternal life. Okay, so how can all of us be the rightful claim this inheritance? A bunch of non-Jews, most of us. Secondly, God's promise is ours in Christ. Why should you trust God's promise over the Ten Commandments? Because God's promise is ours in Christ. Look at verse 16. Now the promise was made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to offspring, who is Christ. Okay, we get some grammar lesson. Serious, Paul's going to make an argument about singular versus plural? You better believe it. What in the world is he talking about? Okay, so he is saying that when God promised Abraham, the promise is for you, so here's Abraham, and to your offspring. Now, most people thought this meant his children. And so the nation of Israel descended from Abraham, right? So you have this huge nation of Israel, and they thought, because we're descendants of Abraham, he's our, we, we have blood, Abraham blood in us, right? That's what it meant. And Paul says, no, it said offspring singular, meaning, well, who did it say? Christ. Okay, fast forward 2,100 years to Christ. So he said when the promise was to Abraham and to his offspring, it was talking about Abraham and Jesus. Okay, what does that mean? Here's what it means. That he jumped forward all the way to here, and then through Jesus, the promise is then actuated. He then pays the price to make it possible, and it flows out both directions. See, so it's through Christ. He then paid the price, and then it pours all the way back. All the Jews who actually were descendants of Abraham, really got the inheritance through Jesus because he's the one. Abraham didn't do anything. He stood over here. It was Jesus that did. Does that make sense? So all the people in the Old Testament are saved through that, but then it also comes forward to us. I hope that makes sense. Both directions. See, in Matthew 1.1, it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus had... He was descended. He was a, a biological son, if, you, if we can say that, all the way back to Abraham. But the, it, wasn't, it wasn't an ethnic blessing. I hope that, hope that makes sense. You remember when we talked about union with Christ a little bit ago? We talked about like when two people get married, all the assets come together. This is a key. If, if I can reach back, if, if you remember that sermon, and pull that theology back into your minds, Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, right? We've become one. This is how this works. The key part to understanding how this offspring of Abraham all the way to Jesus gets to us is our union with Christ, that you have to be union, just like in marriage, with Christ so that if, the, if, the inherit, if Abraham's inheritance was promised to Jesus and Jesus paid the price to make it possible, and then we marry Jesus, so to speak, right? We're union with him, then we are the rightful heir. Did that logic make sense? I hope it did. That's what Paul's doing here. Uh, my ESV Reformation Study Bible had this note. See if this helps. Paul is well aware that the noun offspring is a singular form 
that can be referring collectively or individually. So if any of you English majors actually thought in your head, but wait, you can use the singular for the plural. And he actually does it in verse 29. I put it in your bulletin. Look at verse 29. He says, and if, and if you're a Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring. Okay, is, that, is the offspring singular or plural there? It's singular referring to plural. It's saying you're Abraham's offspring referring to all of us. Okay, so either A, Paul doesn't know what he's talking about, or B, he has a different point. Is that even though you can use the singular to refer to a group, he's saying in God's mind when he said the singular, he meant singular Christ. Make sense? He's not saying that it's the only way you can understand the word offspring. It can never be referred to a group. He's saying in God's mind, when he said offspring, he meant Christ. And so, and then you see through Christ, we're all through a union with Christ. Then the blessing flows both directions. Okay, that's what's going on there. Oh, here's something else that's good. This is, this is a little bit of a tangent, but it's a really important one. So Paul is making his whole argument on singular versus plural. All right, what's the implications of that on his view of the Bible? Genesis was written likely 1,500 years prior to Paul using the Bible. What does it say about his belief in the trustworthiness of each word? No, not each word, whether it's plural or singular, of one word. He's going to make an argument based on that. Paul believed in the inerrancy of Scripture. Inerrancy means it's absolutely trustworthy. There are no errors in any of it. Jesus does the same thing. Jesus makes an argument on whether of its present tense or past tense. He says, did it say God, it didn't say God was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It says that at the burning bush, God said, I am. And so Jesus makes a whole argument on am versus was. And here Paul makes a whole argument on offspring versus offsprings. Do you see that application? You just like Paul, just like Jesus, they trusted the Bible. You can too. The whole Bible, every last word of it, is trustworthy. Now, there's a whole other conversation. If this is of interest to you, and you want to know about translations and all that, I don't have time to cover that in this, in this aside. I'd, I'd love to talk to you about it. But you can absolutely trust. Paul trusted it enough to say, I'm going to make this argument on singular versus plural. Okay, back to our topic at hand. Between the two options of trusting in your good works the Ten Commandments, and trusting in a promise made 4,000 years ago, this is a much better option. And to read verse 29 again, look at it again. He said, if you are Christ, this morning, brothers and sisters, if you belong to Christ, if you have placed your faith in Christ, if you showed up at the courthouse and said, I want to claim my rightful inheritance in Christ, what does it say? Then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to to promise. You are the rightful heir of Abraham's inheritance. So now you're really curious. Just like if you find your name in someone's will, you're like, tell me what I'm getting. What are you getting? What is Abraham's inheritance? Well, from last week, we saw that it said that we're receiving the Spirit. Okay, well, that sounds like a good deal. We actually receive God. God comes and lives inside of us through the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1 is helpful here. It says, in Christ, this is 1, 13, and 14 from Ephesians, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, so that would be talking to you Christians. If you aren't, that's the key thing. Believe in him. 
you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This would be like your rich relative sending you a check and saying, hey, here's a down payment. Here's some of your inheritance. You're like, this is great. Man, I got $100,000 of the whole inheritance that I just received. It's a down payment of what I'm going to receive when they die. And so this says that the Holy Spirit is a down payment of what you're going to receive. That sounds pretty cool. What's the rest of it? Hebrews 11 is helpful here. It says, For Abraham not was looking forward to a city that is foundation, whose designer and builder was God. And because remember, what he, some might say that Abraham's inheritance was a bunch of farmland in the Middle East, right? Is that what you inherited? You are now the proud owner of some farmland in the Middle East. I'm sorry, there's some other guys living there who might argue about this. <laughs> no, no. All right, listen to Hebrews 11. Okay, so he was looking forward to a foundation whose designer and um, a city whose foundation and designer was God. That doesn't sound like the Middle East. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. But I thought he got the promised land. But having seen them and greeted them from afar, what's he talking about? And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. It's hopefully starting to come clear. If they were thinking of the land which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it was, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. You see, even Hebrews 11 connects and says, those guys got it. Yeah, they got the promised land. Yeah, he got a bunch of children. Yeah, God blessed him. All true. But that wasn't the real inheritance. The real inheritance was heaven. The real inheritance was a real promised land. That is your real inheritance. And no one, no, no one's living there now that's going to try to fight you for it. No, if, see that, this, I love this. You not only get the Holy Spirit now, but you have eternity waiting. This is a glorious inheritance. And you are Abraham's seed. How? In Christ. That's the key. It is your union with Christ. <clears throat> now, finally, our third point. God's promise came how many years before? 430 years. Look at verse 17. It says this. This is what I mean. Isn't it nice? Paul's going to tell us what he meant. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. 430 years. A lot happened in those 430 years. There's not time for me to tell you all the things from Isaac to Jacob to Joseph, who's in Egypt, to the famine, to they get turned to a great nation, to slaves, to Moses shows up, gets them out, and then finally we have the Ten Commandments. Okay, so I could. I just said fast. Okay, so all that happened in 430 years. That's a lot. Remember a few weeks ago I told you about um, how I put concrete blocks between my yard and my mulch? And then I thought of a better analogy last week, the Berlin Wall. That's even bigger. This is even better still. I like Paul, Paul's idea. This isn't concrete anything. This is a gap of how long? 430 years. I want to bring this to modern terms for you. Um, just imagine that I go over to Europe. All right, kids, I take a vacation to Europe, and I, I show up at this beautiful estate. I drive down the, the huge driveway with tree-lined and, and comes into view this huge, huge house. I go knock on the door. A man comes, and I say, sir, could I see um, the deed? Could I see the, the will? 
the last will and testament that, that says this is yours? He says, sure. He goes and he gets a, a document from um, 15, 1593. That's a long time ago. 1593. He says, look, this is my great, 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 great grandfather. And he put in his will, they would come to my family. And I said, I'm so sorry. I have a document here. It's signed 2023. That's an updated version of that will. And it says that it's mine. Sir, I'd like to claim your estate to be mine. It's ridiculous, right? 1593. The difference between that is how many years? 430 years between 1593 and 2023. How ridiculous anyone that's going to have an updated version of a will 400 years later. Do you see, this is Paul's point. He says, how is is it going to show up? And then do you realize poor Abraham? Poor guy, we've left him in the dust. He's long since dead by the time the Ten Commandments come. I'm sorry, Abraham. No heaven for you. God forgot some important stuff. He gave it to Moses 430 years later. I mean, that's the implication of what the Judaizers are saying. You need this other stuff if you're going to really be of God. No, Paul's saying. You can't annul a covenant. Do you, do, do you follow Paul's logic here? 430 years. I mean, that's like twice the U.S. history. That's a long, long time. Long, long time. Well, praise God that we don't need that upgrade. The gospel doesn't need an upgrade. That's what they were doing in Galatia. People are still doing that today. They're trying to upgrade the gospel. There is no update needed. It can't get better than by faith. By faith. You believe that your name is written in the, in the Lamb's book of life. You believe that Christ died, and that's it regardless of the life you've lived or haven't lived. That is salvation. Now, of course, this has a big application. If you're not a Christian, that you just you come empty-handed. But also has an application for believers. Remember I said at the beginning, chronological snobbery, how difficult it is. We trust easily in things seen. Your emotions easily follow this trajectory. Here's your performance. You have a good day, and you have a bad day. And naturally, your emotions follow that. I feel good. I feel bad. I feel good. And they're just, they're, they're exactly parallel. And so what this is saying is it doesn't have to be like that. For a believer, how you feel should be connected on a promise given 4,000 years ago. On your bad days, you should remember a bunch of animals cut in half. And you should say, you know what? Abraham didn't walk through. I'm attached through Christ to Abraham, and that promise, that promise is still for me. My feelings, I'm not going to let my emotions constantly be tied to how my performance is of the Ten Commandments or any law. Does that application make sense? We naturally, not only for salvation, if you aren't saved, you need, the, you need this. But if you're saved, you need this. You need to tie your emotions, your emotional state, your anxiety, to the, this passage, to this story from 4,000 years ago. It is an unconditional covenant. It is not based on the condition. All you had to do was believe. You just trusted, just like an inheritance. Years ago, I mem- memorized the old NIV, so you have to bear with it. It's Numbers 23:19. It says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. Does he promise and not fulfill? Numbers 23, 19. Every promise that God makes, he keeps. A thousand years is as a day to God. 
as 2 Peter 3 says. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. He is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish. I wish that none would perish. Everyone here that hears my voice, I desire kids, adults, everyone. I desire that none of you would perish, paying for your own sins, but that you would believe that there is an inheritance waiting for you that Jesus purchased, and that by faith you would claim it. You would say, Jesus, I've sinned. Please forgive me. God wishes that none would perish and that all would reach repentance. 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9. That's his desire and my desire. You know, I imagine some of you found the logic difficult in this. Most of you are not lawyers. I know most of you, maybe there's a lawyer too that really loves legal logic. Most of you, that's not true of. Really complicated things, basing arguments on, on, ten, on words, whether it's plural or singular. You know, one thing you have to take is, I could give like a big motivational speech and just talk about how much God loves you. And if I was better at it, you would all feel really good and warm inside. And emotionalism would carry you at least out to the parking lot. But there's something better. You know, you, if, you, if you thought your name was written in someone's will, you would not want emotionalism. You'd say, I want to see that document. I want good proof that this will stand up in court because I want that inheritance. You have in Scripture a strong proof that there is a promise that was unconditional, not based on Abraham's performance. And so, yes, it takes your mind. Yes, you have to think and figure out what in the world is Paul talking about. But don't let it stop there. Let it get to your heart. Let it get to your heart that you would actually feel this is comforting way more than motivational speeches. That for 430 years before the Ten Commandments, God had made an unchangeable promise to Abraham that is for you in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would rescue us from chronological snobbery. That you would help us not be so fixated on what is right now but that we could hold on to a promise 4,000 years old and they would actually impact the way they feel. That This week, they would remember that story. It's a vivid story. And that it would bring them comfort, remembering that Abraham did not walk between the animals, that only God did. That God would rather die, that you would rather die. And that's exactly what you did. You hung on a cross, Christ, to guarantee that promise that you made to Abraham. Lord, I thank you that that promise is for me. Lord, I pray for everyone here that there would be no one here that goes from this place holding on to their good lives or their bad lives saying, I'll never get in, but that they would let go of all and run to Christ and claim Christ, and be found in him. Lord, we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.